Well, it is good to be back with you all this morning. It's definitely not best, but it is good uh, to be with you. And uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to be studying this morning as we uh, look at remedies for anxiety. And as you're turning there to Matthew chapter 6, a little over two years ago, on January 13th, 2018, at 8.07 in the morning, the people of Hawaii got quite a scare. There was widespread panic and confusion resulting from a text message that was sent out by the state government. And it was one of those uh, emergency messages that are broadcast uh, to all of the local people. And it said this, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. And at that point in time, North Korea had been testing their nuclear missiles. And since Hawaii is only about 4,600 miles from North Korea, it was possible that if North Korea wanted to, to launch an attack against the United States, and it was targeting the Hawaiian Islands, uh, that uh, a, a ballistic missile uh, would be able to hit the Hawaiian Islands in as little as 15 minutes. And uh, so one person who was in Hawaii at that time said he was standing in line at a, a breakfast buffet table when all of the locals pulled out their phones uh, and immediately, frantically began to, to rush about in panic uh kind of running throughout the dining room and crying and shouting about an incoming attack. And uh this person, because he was a, a tourist there, he didn't really know what to do. He didn't know where to go or who to follow. So he he just went through the buffet line and uh sat there uh and ate uh peacefully and quietly uh until about forty minutes later uh, everybody else kind of sheepishly walked back in uh, after uh, panicking and all of that. And it, it turned out to be a false alarm caused by uh, an emergency uh, agency worker who, instead of pushing the button that said test missile alert, pushed the actual missile alert button. Uh, and so human error. Uh, and uh, while it's easy to see how an incoming uh, nuclear missile could be an immediate source of uh, anxiety and panic, there, there are many other things in our lives that are not that serious, but they prompt a, a similar response uh, within our hearts and minds. And on the, the one hand, we don't need to respond with anxiety in any circumstance in life. We don't have to respond that way. And then, on the other hand, it is very common and normal for us to experience anxiety and concern just about everyday things. Now, even the Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says this, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. He says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy and body 
and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. What's amazing there, he, he speaks about Christian singleness and says that, hey, when we are single, that we can be anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. So uh, anxious uh, is this idea of being overly concerned with something. And again, it's easy for us to grow anxious and concerned about the things in this life. And and usually we are anxious and worried about human relationships, right? Uh, husband and wife conflict, uh, worried about parents or children or siblings, we can also be nervous or anxious concerning our responsibilities uh, or our provisions and our possessions uh, or about life and death. And again, we can all identify with this feeling of anxiety because we've probably uh, felt anxiety for all of those things that I mentioned. And you may be feeling all of those anxieties wrapped up in a, a knot right now uh, in the pit of your stomach. Uh, and Jesus understood that human experience of anxiety and worry. Uh, and that is why here in his Sermon on the Mount, his most famous message, he, he addresses this concept of anxiety. And, and he addresses it because the disciples of Jesus were anxious men. And, and the crowds who were listening to Jesus speak, they were anxious people. And which is why, again, Jesus is, is, is going to address this. But, but before we, we land in chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, I thought it would be just really helpful to circle the runway and see what we are landing uh, upon uh, and this sermon on the mount Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 is about living as a kingdom citizen living as a citizen in the kingdom of God uh, and uh, our citizenship if we have placed our faith and our trust in Christ if we are no longer relying upon uh, ourselves and our own righteousness uh, and we're looking to Jesus in faith that he has paid the penalty for our sins and that we are now forgiven and reconciled to a holy God who has created us and given us life if we look to Jesus in faith and we are now citizens of his kingdom and if we we look at the flow of this sermon that Jesus gives, he he begins in again chapter five verse one, uh, and the first part of this sermon is known as the Beatitudes, verses one through twelve, uh, and this is the character of kingdom citizens. Okay, uh, and verses thirteen through sixteen, this is the calling of kingdom citizens that we are called to be salt and light in the world around us. Then verses seventeen through twenty. Now, this is the criteria for becoming a citizen. Uh, and really what he's saying is your righteousness, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And this would have been absolutely shocking to the crowds who were hearing this, because who could be more righteous than the religious leaders of their day? But Jesus is saying you, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven with a self-righteousness. That's not going to cut it. You're not going to get into the kingdom uh, by just merely doing things. You, you need a righteousness that is beyond you. And that's what he is going to then lay out. 
So we have the character of kingdom citizens, the calling of kingdom citizens, the criteria for becoming a citizen. Then beginning in verse 21 of chapter 5, we see these correct principles of righteousness. Uh, and that if you are a kingdom citizen, if you've looked to Christ in faith, and this is how you are now called to live, this is what's uh, going to be your, your character and your conduct, these are the principles of righteousness. And, and the big picture, if you look at the last verse in Matthew chapter 5, is that we are called as kingdom citizens to imitate our Heavenly Father. We're called to imitate the King. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 to 18... Jesus speaks about the correct practice of righteousness. So he goes through correct principles, and now this is the correct practice. Uh, and, he, and he mentions giving alms. Uh, he mentions praying. He mentions fasting. And, and as you do these things, your goal is not the applause of man, but the approval of God, and that God would see uh, and reward you, not that you would trumpet your righteousness before humanity. And that brings us to, to verse 19 in chapter 6. And here Jesus is going to speak about the correct perspectives of kingdom citizens. And in verses 19 to 24, Jesus speaks about the perspective, the correct perspective concerning wealth. And why don't you read those verses with me? Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus addresses this right perspective of wealth. He says, hey, don't store up for yourself treasures here on the earth, because all of those treasures can ultimately be destroyed or taken from you. But he says, instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because they are imperishable and they are untouchable. No one's going to break into heaven and steal your treasure that you store up there. And then there is a, a continuity of thought coming off of that discussion about the correct perspective of wealth in verses 19 to 24 to a correct perspective about worry in verses 25 to 34. And let's look there at those verses. This is what we are going to be studying this morning. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows what you need, knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And as Jesus uh, is addressing the correct perspective on worry in these, these ten verses, he's going to issue six commands. And half of the commands that he gives, three of them, are really the same command. Do not be anxious. He says it in verse 25. He says it in verse 31. He says it in verse 34. And that is the the big picture that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples and to the crowds who have gathered to him. He says, no, do not be anxious. And as he teaches the crowds and his disciples, Jesus is addressing their current state of mind. And he commands them, Stop worrying. But he doesn't just merely issue a cold command. He doesn't say, stop it. He reasons with them. He lovingly and logically addresses their hearts and their minds so that they see the remedy for their anxiety is found in understanding truth and in trusting God. And in the same way, Christ addresses us. Because we still worry. We are still anxious. We are a worrying people. And Christ's remedy has not changed. It's the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And the prescription for anxiety is eternal. And the remedies that are given for us to know and apply here are the same. We need to understand truth and trust in God. And you you may have heard sermons regarding anxiety before. And you may say, well, I've heard those sermons, but it hasn't helped me be less anxious. It hasn't helped me stop worrying about the future. That's where what I would like to look at today is what are these remedies and then what are we supposed to do with them? We are to do something with these And what is it that Christ is prescribing for us here? And what I'd like to to look at from this are four directions on this prescription label. right? These are the remedies, but for these remedies to work, you must follow four directions. Uh, And the first of these directions 
uh, is that uh, we are to understand the nature of the remedies. All right, direction number one, understand the nature of the remedies. Uh, and, and that we are to pursue an intellectual understanding of the truths as they are proclaimed here. If we don't know uh, these truths, we can't do anything beyond that. Uh, and so the, these commands are important. I said, like I said, Jesus issues six commands, but but again, even more important than that is the the reasoning and the the logic uh, that Jesus is trying to lead the people listening to. Uh, and and really what we're going to see in, in these 10 verses, Jesus is going to lay out really seven remedies. Okay, we're going to we're going to run through them uh, really quickly here and we're going to spend the majority of our time on this first point. So if you're you're looking at your clocks there in your your living room, uh, you're like, man, he's going really long on this first point. There's the majority of our time is going to be spent here. So uh, and then we'll we'll get into the other steps afterwards. But. Uh, this first direction is so important that we are to understand the nature of the remedies. And what are these remedies? Well, now the first one is uh, understand that life is more than food and clothing. And it's found in verse 25. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And and this is where Jesus is going to establish this pattern that he's going to follow in in the uh, the remaining remedies uh, that Jesus issues a command or an instruction. And here, uh, the way it's worded in the in the Greek, this command is to stop an action that is already taking place. So he's saying, stop worrying. Stop being anxious. And after issuing this command, then it's followed by a description or examples. Or what does it sound like to be anxious? Well, you're worried about food and drink and what you're going to put on. Uh, and so he says, stop worrying about those things. But after the, the command and the, the description and the examples is the, the logical reasoning that supports uh, what Jesus is saying. And Jesus asks a rhetorical question uh, at the end of verse 25. He says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And the answer that we w- should all say is yes. Well, we understand that. Uh, and, and that would be the, the answer that we would give uh, that, hey, life is more than just these things. There there are more important things to life and that's where we must uh understand that truth. Now, Colossians 1 tells us uh, that we have been created by Jesus and we have been created for Jesus. So we are not created uh, to fill our bellies and to clothe our bodies. We were created for the glory of Christ. Uh, Colossians 1 verses 15 and 16 describing Jesus says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, and all things were created through him and for him, or more literally in the Greek, to him. Meaning that all things were created by Jesus in his power, 
And where are all things headed? They're headed to Him. Now, they were created to move towards Him and to glorify Him. Uh, and you and I, and everyone who has ever existed in all of human history, and all of human history itself, is all moving towards the glory of our triune God. Uh, and and when we are anxious about certain things, the physical things here in this life, we have forgotten that little truth. Uh, we have forgotten that we were not created just for those things. We were created for the Creator. Uh, and we must remember that and understand that, that life is more than food and drink. That's the first remedy. Remedy number two is found in verse 26. Now we are to understand that God will feed you because he feeds the birds. Uh, and, and Jesus uses um, illustrations uh, in a remarkable way uh, in this passage. And in verse 26, we see the same flow. He issues a command, look at the birds of the air. And again, if you can imagine Jesus being on a, uh, on a, a mountainside as he's speaking, and there would have been birds uh, all around the people and all around these crowds and the disciples as they are there uh, on the, the, the mountain. He says, look at the birds of the air. He says, they, they neither sow, they don't plant seeds, nor do they, they harvest the crop, and they don't gather things in and store it in barns, and yet God still feeds them. Again, there's the command, there's the description, and then the logical conclusion that Jesus is trying to lead us to, that he wants us to arrive at, is that, hey, if God feeds these little tiny birds, he's also going to feed us because we are more valuable than those birds. That God cares for the, the birds of the heaven uh, he's going to care for us. This is a, an argument from, from lesser to greater, from uh, light to heavy, uh, kind of in, in rabbinic thought. And I remember reflecting upon uh, this verse, that, hey, God feeds the birds. And uh, one day, uh, when I was younger, I was working at the after-school club uh, at the Christian school at our church. And uh, at the beginning of the after-school club, we would give the, the kids a snack, usually some type of cracker, wheat thins, or Cheez-Its, we'd give it to them in these uh, little Dixie cups, and they'd be uh, eating and, and, and playing at these outdoor picnic tables. And uh, as you can imagine with elementary school kids, sometimes, occasionally, some of those crackers would fall to the ground. Uh, and so the, the kids would be, you know, uh, having their snacks, and then they'd go run off and play on the playground. And I was closing up the snack shack one day, and I just began to observe these little sparrows that came... And they began to to nibble and, and poke at uh, the, the the crackers that had been left there by the children. And I just it, it struck me because again of just knowing and seeing that hey, in God's providence, God is using what the the crumbs and the crackers that fall from the the children's snack to feed these birds. Uh, and again, how much more? Will God orchestrate things and events, and in His providence, will He work to provide for His people? And I don't need to to worry. What I need to do is I need to understand that God will feed me because He cares and feeds for the birds. That is what Jesus is saying here. And that's remedy number two. Remedy number three is seen in verse 27. And Jesus says this, 
It says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And so remedy number three is, is understand that your worry accomplishes nothing positive. Right? Uh, Jesus points out that, hey, by being anxious, what does that do for you? See, this time Jesus kind of bypasses. He doesn't issue a command. He doesn't give a description. He just immediately goes to the principle. Like, hey, how's that, how's that working? What benefit does being anxious accomplish in your life? It doesn't fix anything. And usually our, our worry and our anxiety, usually it just uh, multiplies uh, the concerns of life. Uh, there was a, a very famous song back in 1988 by uh, Bobby McFerrin. Became a number one hit. Uh, you're probably familiar with the song. Don't worry, be happy. Uh, and the lyrics in that song, he says, "In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double." Uh, he says, "Ain't got no place to lay your head. Somebody came and took your bed. Don't worry, be happy." The landlord said, "Your rent is late. He may have to litigate." And you know, just, it goes on and on. But the, the the idea there again of if you worry, your trouble becomes double. Now you, you multiply your trouble in your anxiety, and it, you don't add anything to your life uh, through your worry. Again, we must understand that our worry accomplishes nothing positive. Now, then a fourth remedy is seen in verses twenty-eight to thirty. This is that we are to understand that God will clothe us because he clothes the lilies. And Jesus, looking to this outdoor setting that he is in and speaking to the crowds and and the multitudes, he points out the lilies of the field. And again, the command here is to, to learn, to observe, to consider, to think about the lilies of the field, how they grow. Uh, and how they are adorned. They neither toil nor spin. And the idea of spinning is like spinning uh, thread for clothing. Uh, they don't have to do any of those things, and yet God has adorned them. He has so clothed the grass of the field. Uh, and he he points to, again, this, this argument of, of lesser to greater. And if this grass, which is so beautifully adorned, so just look around you everywhere, Right, uh, and that's what we see in our own springtime right now. I'm always uh, re- remarking upon the the, the fields uh, in in the park or my neighbor's lawn across the street. The grass really is greener over there. Uh, but uh, just looking and seeing the, the natural beauty around us, and seeing, look, if God so adorns nature uh, and and the grass of the field, which is here today, and it's going to burn later. It's not going to be here very long. Don't you think that God is going to clothe us as well? Like God cares even more for us. And again, Jesus is arguing from, from lesser to greater. And then uh, what's, what's remarkable here at the end of verse 30, Jesus resorts to name-calling. Uh, he, he uses a, a word to describe his disciples. And he says, oligapistoi, uh, which means... Little faith, the idea of uh, little oligos, kind of the idea of an oligarchy is a rule of a few people. Uh, his disciples are men of little or few 
faith. And, and Jesus uses the same word elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. He, he uses it in Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, after he was asleep on the boat and there's a storm raging and his disciples come to him in a panic after he had just been uh, not waking up and this chaos and craziness on the, on the water. And Jesus says, are you you of little faith? He says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. And then Jesus also uses this same word to speak of Peter in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, as Jesus was coming to his disciples walking uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And Peter says, Lord, if that's you, call me out and, and I'll come to you. Uh, and Jesus says, okay, it's me, come on out. And then Peter uh, begins to walk, but then he begins to grow fearful uh, and he begins to sink. Uh, and Jesus, uh, in verse 31, immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And we are, we are called to, to understand. We are called not to be a people of little faith, but look and learn about the creation of God around us. Again, seeing that God clothes the lilies of the field, that we are to understand that God will also clothe us. And then, there is a fifth remedy in verses 31 and 32. Let's understand that God has known your present needs. Verses uh, 31 and 32 say this. Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. All. So again, we see this pattern of Jesus issues a command. Do not be anxious. And this is worded differently in the Greek than the command in verse 25. This is a, a broad uh, general command of, hey, don't be anxious ever. Where in verse 25, he's saying, stop being anxious. And so after this command, there's the description. Don't be anxious by saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Uh, and then there are two logical points that Jesus uh, brings his audience to. Number one, that the Gentiles seek after all these things. And we'll, we'll return to that statement a little bit later. Uh, but, but his second statement, he says, And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Uh, and the emphasis there, and the way it's worded in the Greek, uh, the emphasis is that God has known in the past what we presently need right now at this exact moment. When it speaks of God knows, it's using a, a perfect tense, which sp speaks of an event that took place in the past and has ongoing results into the present. Uh, and then Jesus uses the, the present tense about what you need right now. And again, this is what a truth to know and understand. Now, oftentimes we feel like God doesn't know what we need at this exact moment because we didn't know what we needed. Now, suddenly we are in need and we're like, God, why haven't you given me what I need? And Jesus is saying, no, God has always known what you will need right now and what you will need two days from now and two years from now. God has always known what you will be in need of at any point in time in your life. God does not need to, to scramble to make a plan when disaster hits our lives. Like when coronavirus came about, God did not need to make a Costco run. 
Okay, he he didn't need to consult advisors concerning how he should respond. Right? He didn't hold court in heaven and saying, "Okay, angels, what should we do now?" Uh, he has known all of these things and exactly how he will meet each and every one of our needs uh, each and every day, not only during this coronavirus, but uh, during our entire lives. And God will provide for us each and every day because he knows exactly what we need. Again, just thinking through the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say when he was instructing his disciples concerning how they should pray? God, give us our annual allotment of bread. Give me all the bread I will ever need for my entire life. No. Give us this day our daily bread. Because God knows our present needs and has known them from eternity past. That's remedy number five. Remedy number six is found in verse 33. Understand that God will provide as you seek him. Understand that God will provide as you seek him. And the command here is not a not a prohibition, but rather it's a it's a positive. Hey, do this. It's seek first. But you know what's interesting here? Jesus says seek first, and then he mentions two things. So you're like, well, well how do I do that? How, how do I how do I pursue two things all at once? How do I pursue God's kingdom and God's righteousness? Well, and uh, in, in saying seek first two things, it means those two things are inseparable. And the idea that as we as we seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, Jesus says that all of these things will be added to you. Now, and we and we usually understand the all these things to be speaking of uh, the food and drink and clothing. And I think that that's correct. We need to to understand that as we seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness, that God will provide and care for us uh, in that way. But also understand uh, that the, these things also includes God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Again, those are the, the God's righteousness is not earned by us. Well, we don't seek it that we may obtain it. We seek it that we may receive it from Him. Uh, and the same thing with His kingdom. We don't earn our citizenship. Our citizenship is bestowed upon us. That's what was earned on our behalf at the cross uh, of Jesus Christ when he died to pay the penalty for our sins. And so when it speaks of all of these things being added to us, yes, it's our physical needs, but it's also every spiritual blessing uh, in the heavenly places. And so our goal and what we're called to now is to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and as we do that, God will provide for us. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we are going to be wealthy. Uh, there are many, many of God's people that live in poverty throughout the world. Uh, and, and that's what we need to to grasp and understand. That when Jesus is saying, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that doesn't necessarily mean that our standard of living will always be the same. Uh, it doesn't mean that we will always be wealthy. And as I've said in the past, if you live in 21st century America, you are wealthy. Uh, and we are not necessarily going to live that way always and, and come to grips with that now. Uh, and But God is promising that all of our needs will be met, that he will feed us and he will clothe us. We need to understand that we need a lot less than we think we need. And God has promised to provide all that we need if we seek Him first. We need to understand that. 
And then the final remedy that we see here in this passage is found in verse 34. We're to understand that each day has its own trouble. Jesus repeats the, the same command that he issued in verse 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So Jesus again issues this, this large, broad, overarching command of do not be anxious. But now it's, it's directed towards being anxious about the future. Uh, and the provisions and possessions or, or life and death, you are really anxious about the future. You are anxious about what is going to happen in those areas tomorrow, the next day, or the day beyond that. And Jesus is speaking of tomorrow here just as a way of speaking about the, the indefinite future. And he's saying, look, tomorrow is going to have its own trouble. Uh, and tomorrow's troubles will be enough for that day. Uh, and today's troubles are enough for today. You don't have to to look at tomorrow's troubles and bring them into today uh, as if today's troubles aren't difficult enough. And that is the emphasis that Jesus is making here, that you don't have to to be anxious. There's things that are going to to take place that you didn't see coming, that you don't even you can't even be anxious about it right now because you don't see it coming. Just like this coronavirus, you know, six months ago, who saw any of this happening? Right? We didn't see, oh, I'm going to be under quarantine for two months. Uh, I'm going to, we're all going to be in our houses uh, for an indefinite period of time, and the whole economy is going to shut down. And all of the, like, we would have thought you were crazy. We don't even know what tomorrow holds. So we don't need to be anxious for tomorrow. But uh, in issuing this command, Jesus is not saying that we, you know, we don't need to plan for tomorrow. We, we, we plan, even as it speaks of in James chapter 4, uh, and we, we make our plans and then we say, Lord willing, this is what will happen. And that's what we are commanded to do. It is wise uh, to plan ahead. Uh, it is sinful to worry ahead. That's what Jesus is is telling us here. And all of these remedies, as we run through that list really quickly, our intellectual understanding of these is where our our spiritual growth in the area of concern and anxiety and worry. This is where it begins. We, we need to reflect and understand these truths. Uh, and if we don't understand them, we can't go any further beyond that. And we'll never grow in addressing our anxiety. Uh, once, when I was in a hospital room, I saw a sign uh, it said, ask me three, and there were these three questions that it was encouraging uh, those who come to the hospital to ask. It says, every time you talk with your doctor, nurse, or pharmacist, ask these three questions. And it says, number one, what is my main problem? Number two, what do I need to do? And number three, why is it important for me to do this? And I thought that was profound there in uh, a hospital room because that is exactly uh, what we need to know and understand even as we seek to grow spiritually. Uh, and that first question, what is my main problem? We need to, to understand what is it, what, what is the truth that I need to consider? What is reality saying? What's going on in my body regarding our health? Uh, and, and oftentimes we, we, kind of like to speed right past that first question, right? What is taking place uh, and what's the issue? 
And we like to get to the, what do I need to do? To just tell me what I need to do to fix it. Uh, and we don't necessarily want to understand what's really taking place. We just want simple steps to fix everything. And we also skip that last question of, of why is it important for me to do this? We we don't necessarily even seek to be convinced. Uh, and that's where there, there's numerous studies of uh, of patients who, who go to the doctor and who are told they have uh, a severe illness, uh, and if they don't change their lifestyle, they're going to they're going to die. The way that they are living is going to culminate in death. And then there's again so many studies that show how many people cannot change that, that they continue in those habits that are leading to their death. Uh, and we we have to be convinced of why it's important for us to change. But, but all of this begins with what do I need to know? What is it that is true here? And, and that is what we must know before we can grow spiritually. It all begins with our understanding of God's Word because God's Word doesn't just tell us about God Himself. It also teaches us about the world around us. It teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us about the salvation that we have in Jesus. Uh, it teaches us about the life that we are now called to live as citizens in His kingdom. God's Word teaches us all of these things, but understanding the nature of these remedies for anxiety, this is the first direction that we see here. Again, if we don't understand them, we can go no further. Because if we don't understand them, we cannot trust them. And again, that leads to the second direction on our prescription label here. Uh, We are to understand the nature of the remedies. And then direction number two, and again, we're going to work through these last few directions here pretty quickly. Direction number two is that we are to trust the efficacy of the remedies, that we are to trust that these remedies will work to address our anxiety. And as Jesus is is teaching here, do you notice that he is addressing to the people the credibility of God, that the way that he is reasoning with them, again, arguing from lesser to greater and pointing these things out, he's saying, look, God is going to care for you. He cares for birds and he cares for the grass. You think he doesn't care about you? But Jesus is is not merely wanting them to understand certain spiritual truths. He's not just wanting to know things about God. He wants them to know God. He wants them to to trust God. He wants them to wholeheartedly believe these truths and then to entrust themselves to a wise, loving, and sovereign Heavenly Father. Uh, and you can you can think about it in this way that that Jesus wants them to move merely just from hearing his words to responding to them to to being convinced that they are truth, and that is the beginning point of okay, now I need to act uh, and this is the the difference between uh even the, the two foundations that Jesus uses as the the final conclusion of this sermon, right? Uh, in verses 24 to 27 in Matthew 7, he speaks about everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, right? And he describes what happens uh, with that house. And then he compares that person uh, who who hears and responds and obeys to the person who only hears, right? That person is not convinced, does not trust what he has heard. So he may... Uh, be able to articulate and understand what Jesus has said, but he's not trusting it. He's not going to do anything beyond that. 
And that's what we need to move from merely knowing about these remedies to trusting in these remedies. You can think of it this way, that remedy number one, we need to be convinced that life is more than food and clothing. Remedy two, we need to trust that God will feed us because God feeds the birds. Remedy three, we need to be certain that our worry accomplishes nothing. The fourth remedy, we need to believe that God will clothe us because he clothes the lilies of the field. Remedy five, we need to be confident that God has known our present needs. We need to expect that God will provide as we seek him. And we need to have that conviction that each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day has its own trouble. I don't need to to borrow from tomorrow to make today more anxious. And it has been said that faith is the eyesight of the human soul. Faith has the ability to look beyond the physical, earthly realm to see who God is and what He is doing in our circumstances. If you turn with me backwards in your Bible to Second Kings chapter six, beginning in verse eight, we we come to this account of uh, Elisha, uh, and the king of Syria wants to kill. Elisha, and that's, that's what we're going to, to see, beginning in verse 8 in 2 Kings chapter 6. It says, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, speaking of Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him, And thus he used uh, to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So the king of Syria is saying, Look, I keep setting these traps and Israel keeps avoiding them. So which among you is a traitor? Uh, And this is what one of his servants says, verse 12. None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city. So the king of Syria says, all right, if this prophet is the problem, I'm going to go take out this prophet and all things will be solved. Then verse 15, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So, so, 
the, the servant of Elisha wakes up to find that the city that they are in is completely surrounded by the army of the Syrians. And he gets worried. He gets scared. And Elisha says, oh, no, you don't need to worry about that. Elisha, in his faith and in his maturity, had an understanding of what God was going to do in this situation where the the young man in his immaturity and in his lack of faith, he didn't know. He couldn't see what God was doing. uh, But we need to have eyes of faith. We need to exercise faith. We're not called to be, oh, you of little faith. We must look and see what is taking place around us, what God is doing. But... This is not an easy thing, right? You may say, well, well, Thomas, you make it sound like I just flip a switch, uh, turn on the faith in my life, and then all things will be well. I understand that it's hard. Uh, and you may say, how do we grow in our faith? Yeah, I, I grow in my understanding by coming to church, by reading the Bible. How do I grow in my faith? Well, I would say number one is by prayer. All right, what did Elisha do? He says, Lord, open his eyes. Lord, help my servant to see uh, and and echo that same prayer to God. God, help me to see what is really taking place. Help me to exercise faith. Help me to believe. Secondly, I think we, we can seek to change our perspective. Not just looking at it, well, what do I think about this? But, hey, what does God think about this? What does his word say? That we can strive to see and comprehend what God is doing according to His Word. We can also uh, grow uh, in uh, faith by by memorizing and meditating upon Scripture. Again, and uh, all the, the faith component is built upon the knowledge component. Again, if we don't understand who God is and what He has said, we can't believe any of those things. So, memorizing and meditating upon Scripture is a way of growing our faith. I would also say that way to grow your faith is to reason with yourself. Uh, God is not calling us to a blind faith or an irrational faith. And he's calling us to something that is very rational and very logical. Again, think about how Jesus is addressing anxiety here. Right? He, he is addressing the, the minds of his disciples, the minds of the people. He says, hey, look, you're not thinking right. Uh, look, God cares for, again, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Why do you think he doesn't care about you? Changing our thinking, reasoning with ourselves, and then understanding that faith will grow with time. Again, that's part of our progressive sanctification. And Again, understanding the nature of these remedies and then trusting that they will be effective in addressing our anxiety. And then the third direction we see is this, that we must consume the goodness of the remedies. Must consume the goodness of the remedies. So you see, up until this point, as we've talked about understanding and then trusting, we haven't actually partaken of this prescription. We haven't partaken of these uh, remedies, but but eventually we have to come to that point where we are consuming what we have come to understand and come to trust. It's like if you were to uh, to go and pick up a, a medical prescription at the pharmacy, the pharmacist talks to you uh, about the medicine that you're about to receive. Hey, here's the benefits, here's the dangers, uh, and how you're supposed to to take all of these things. But if you get that prescription and then you take it home and you put it in your bathroom in the medicine cabinet and just leave it there. 
Does that prescription do you any good? No. You're like, well, I know it will help, but it's just going to sit there. No, eventually you have to get to the point where you go and you take that prescription. You have to go to the medicine cabinet, open uh, that, that pill bottle, and, and swallow those pills. You eventually have to pres- consume the prescription. You have to take the medicine according to the instructions, which is what we are called to do with these remedies. Not just merely understand them and not just merely trust in them, but then get to the point where you are consuming them. And what does that look like? Well, that means that uh, when these truths need to be applied, you apply them to yourself in your heart and in your mind. It means that these truths are going to address the way that you think and to inform what you love and what you hate, to help you uh, change the decisions that you make and understand that the way Jesus is addressing this, anxiety is a choice. And you are choosing the way that you are thinking about something, uh, and you are choosing to dwell on some truths but not on God's truth, uh, or truths that you think are true on how you're perceiving and interpreting reality. Uh, These truths are going to help you alter what you're pursuing and to influence how you are feeling. Uh, And again, for instance, right now, you may be uh, anxious and and feeling worried about the coronavirus. You may be worried about the virus itself. You may be worried about uh, the the economic shutdown or the the rules that the government is imposing. Uh, and you can be concerned about all of those things and how you'll feed and clothe your family, how you'll pay your mortgage and rent and how you'll pay other bills and when you might return to work. And all of these things may be swirling in, in your mind. But if we were to, to take the, the remedies that are given to us in this passage and apply them to our current situation, we'd say, hey, my thoughts need to change because I know that life is more than food and clothing. My desires need to change uh, and and what I am seeking needs to change because rather than seeking comfort and security in the things uh, of this life, I need to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. My emotions may need to be confronted uh, and I I need to, to call myself to trust that God will provide for me as I seek him. And that, again, he provides for the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field. How much more will he care for us? This also influences my my will and my choices. Again, that I should choose faith rather than choosing to be anxious. Because by being anxious, I'm not going to add anything to my life. And then concerning my affections of what I love and what I hate. As you think about all of these things, as you think about these remedies, uh, we should have a deepening affection for the God who loves and cares for us. Even when we are fretful and anxious and not thinking about who he is, but we're just, it's like we have forgotten who our father is. Forgotten his ability to care for us and his love for us. We must consume the goodness of these remedies if they are to have any impact upon our lives. And then all too often we, we learn spiritual truths, either from sermons on Sunday morning or from reading throughout the week. And we learn these truths and then we go home and we just put them in the medicine cabinet. I say, oh yeah, that's just sitting right there. And we never actually go and consume those truths when they are needed. 
We do not trust in them and we do not turn to them. But we have to. We, we must understand. We must trust in the Word of God and then we must consume it. We must consume these remedies. And then lastly, the fourth direction here is that we will experience the results of the remedies. This is the, the last direction. And if you follow the, the first three, you'll, you will experience the results. That you are going to uh, experience, rather than anxiety, you'll experience the, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I love John 13, verse 17. It says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And Jesus says, yeah, blessed if you know them, but then there, there needs to be something addition to that, of the, the doing of them. Philippians 4 will also phrase it this way. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the results and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And if we follow the instructions, we will experience the results. And if you, if you think with me, what happens when we experience the results of a remedy? Okay, uh, and, and all of you at, at this point have probably uh, no doubt heard someone talk to you about essential oils, uh, about their their efficacy and how they have benefited them. Uh, and, and the reason they're coming and speaking to you about essential oils or some other remedy that they've come across, uh, the reason they're speaking to you about that is because they have a personal experience uh, that those have helped them in their time of need. That has been a remedy for them. So even as we experience the results of these remedies, if we uh, understand them, if we trust in them, if we consume them and then experience the results, what should we then do? Well, we should go and speak to others about that. Well, we should go and proclaim these remedies to others and help them to see and understand them in the same way that people are evangelistic about uh, other little things in life. But we must begin with the big remedy of the gospel, the big remedy for sin, that Christ lived and died for sinners, and now we are called to believe in him and our submit our lives to him, believing that Jesus lived and died for sinners so that we might be forgiven by God and reconciled with God. And understand there can be no peace of mind until we have peace with God. And only then can anxiety be remedied as we understand, as we trust, as we consume these remedies. And then we will experience the results of the remedies. What about that little portion that I skipped uh, back uh, in verse 30? I'm sorry, verse 31, where Jesus says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And Jesus makes that little point there. And he's making a comparison, again, just like he has earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 47. He says, what, uh, If you greet only your brothers, what are you? What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then 
in chapter 6, verse 7, he says, hey, don't pray as the Gentiles do. And kind of the, this underlying theme in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're living as kingdom citizens, we can't live as the world around us. We can't live like unbelievers if we are citizens of the king. Uh, and really, really what Jesus is saying here is that worry and following Jesus are incompatible. That you, you can't do both at the same time. That if you are following Jesus consistently, you won't be anxious. You won't be worrying. And if you are worrying consistently, then you are not following and trusting Jesus consistently. And that's why verse 33 begins with a word of contrast. But, so, so the, the Gentiles seek after all of those things, but you, kingdom citizens, you seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. And that is what we must see and understand, that worry does nothing except marginalize God, his person, his character. And well, we can't be that way. We must live differently. There's a story about uh, that Martin Luther wrote about a time when he was uh, very anxious uh, and he was tried by his own sinfulness and distraught by the wickedness of the world and the the dangers that were besetting the church. Uh, and uh, he was uh, surprised when one morning his his wife Katie walked walked in and she was dressed all in black as if she had been mourning and grieving uh and and surprised he says uh who's died Uh, and and her reply to him was don't you know god in heaven is dead and luther responds with a snort you you talk nonsense katie how can god die he is uh, immortal and will live through all eternity and katie asked him well is that really true and luther answered well of course And Katie then said, and yet, though you do not doubt that, yet you are so hopeless and discouraged. And Luther realized the contradiction between his belief and his behavior. Uh, And at that point, he said he he mastered his anxiety because he he understood that, that worry is really only a practical atheism. That when I am worried, I am removing God from the picture uh, and saying that he doesn't exist and then I'm becoming overwhelmed in my circumstances. One other theologian and pastor says this, that disciples of Christ must not permit their needs to dominate their prayers, their thoughts, and their activities. He says that is immaturity. But neither must disciples think that God does not care about their needs. He says that is unbelief. My prayer is that that we would be neither immature nor unbelieving this week, but that we would grow in maturity and faith, trusting in the God who will provide, even as he has provided for the birds of the air and the lilies of the fields.